0: Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes, I'm the editor of Hollywood magazine, and joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer Liam Kirkoddy.
1: Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine.
0: I've interviewed Annie Shepherd, the CEO of Salix, which enables public sector organisations across England, Scotland and Wales to take a lead in tackling climate change. And one of the things that Annie and I were talking about was that how do you make... LED lighting, street lighting and recycling, a sexy subject but she manages it.
1: Yeah, I've never heard this much about SNP candidate selection processes normally you follow once they're selected
0: Well I think, I mean I'm I'm old enough to remember new Labour going through this process and I think when you've got a party that's been in power for a long time, potential for being a candidate that becomes a positive career move they become more competitive You know, the SNP always did say they would be a different kind of party in power but this process seems to be revealing them as much the same as everybody else
1: okay first up we have good week bad week that's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in scotland and beyond Mandy, I have one idea. for. I don't know if it's necessarily a good week. It's just a part of the week that I particularly enjoyed. All right. It was Ed Miliband uh, reappearing on the front benches as he did his kind of roast of Boris Johnson.
0: Yeah, he was brilliant. It's amazing how um, so many politicians, when they fail in the particular role that they had, um, then seem to come into their own. And he gave a star performance standing in for Keir Starmer, didn't he?
1: Yeah, it's almost like when you take the pressure off a little bit, or or each other. he's almost becoming a national treasure. I'd say.
0: Yeah, I feel like that. At the weekend pressure goes off. I suddenly come into my own. I can be quite funny.
1: <laughs> Why don't we record the podcast for the weekend?
0: Well, no, because then I would have the pressure of uh, the day job. So, but yeah, I, yeah Ed Miliband really did take um, Boris Johnson to task over the internal markets bill. Yeah um, and he was just he was really great and uh, I thought the the line when he basically said I'll take your intervention I'll I'll take your intervention um, prime minister so that you can stand up and explain to us which bit of this bill isn't illegal um and of course Boris Johnson couldn't stand up oh, because yeah. there wasn't anything to justify
1: basically it was painful. It was absolutely painful to watch. It was. It was a bit like if if someone made a best man speech, but absolutely hates their friend.
0: <laughs> I don't think you should be a best man if you hate your
1: friend. No, but if they fell out on the stag night or something.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah, or like, marrying the person that you would prefer to marry, or something like that. Isn't
1: that? Yeah, it's like a darker version of love, actually. But you know what? Which doesn't involve the prime minister.
0: No matter how good Ed Miliband was that day, he still didn't give us the owl.
1: No, still no owl. And doesn't give a hoot.
0: I know. So okay. I'll never trust the man.
1: No, no, that's true. Um, but, and then things went downhill again later for for Labour, just as so things it seemed to be going well.
0: It's kind of the way for Labour, isn't it? Any gain they make is matched by um, a faux pas.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I, I presume, you're referencing uh, the conference.
0: Yeah, virtual conference.
1: Mm. So, um, which actually should make it easier because you, you would be able to have all the information written down in front of you without anyone noticing
0: well you'd think so wouldn't you But you, um, yeah you could put yeah.
1: post-its on the, on the laptop
0: but Angela Rayner the deputy leader managed to welcome the Scottish Labour leader to the virtual conference by calling him Richard Lennon
1: Richard Lennon, yes, uh, which yeah. is obviously pretty embarrassing for Labour leader Richard Lockhead. Uh, um, he, won't, he won't enjoy that at all.
0: Uh, switching parties. But,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: I think uh, I mean, in a way you can forgive Labour leaders or deputy leaders for getting names wrong of Scottish Labour leaders because there's so many of them. Or there have <laughs> been so many of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. I know, at least it wasn't an old one. It would it, have been worse if, if you'd introduced um, Joanne Lamont or something.
0: Oh, well, that allows me to tell the story, doesn't it, about when I interviewed um, Harriet Harman, and I was interviewing her in Westminster, and she had some notes in front of her, and she got up to go away. So, of course, being me, I looked at her notes, and Mm. somebody had very helpfully, one of her advisors, had written out phonetically how to say Joanne Lamont's name.
1: Oh, no.
0: I know. She still managed to get it wrong.
1: I mean, Johan is the bad one, really.
0: Hohan Lamont.
1: <laughs> <laughs> actually, I've never really been clear on the second part of it anyway. In fact, oh, yeah. I think quite a few people haven't.
0: I think that's true. I mean, actually, I think Jack McConnell said yesterday on um, social media that he's been calling her the wrong name for about 40 years.
1: Well, it's probably one of those where if you don't correct them early enough, there's not much you can do, is there?
0: You know what uh, I mean? I like yeah,
1: You either have to get in early with that or you just have to accept it for all time. It just becomes embarrassing, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I don't have a ludicrous name.
0: Well imagine if you had a surname that nobody could spell.
1: <laughs> or a surname after a town. For that
0: God, that'd be stupid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so it was all
1: quite nice though, I thought. You know, that yeah. was all it was it was all at least quite pleasant for once.
0: Yeah, and at least we can say a good week for Ed Miliband. So kind of a good week for Labour in some but, ways. Yeah,
1: it was was that the chaos with Ed Miliband that we've been warned about? Because David Cameron was quite clear on that. And oh, it turns out, least... out that's what we've got. <laughs>
0: We've got the chaos, yeah, just the wrong Prime Minister. Um, so on that note, perhaps we should talk about bad week.
1: Yes, uh, bad week, I think, is a pretty clear one. Well, it depends how you, how you want to um, put it, but I think probably bad week for Douglas Ross.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, collectively, probably a bad week um, for the Tories and their legal advisers. So again, this is back to the Internal Markets Bill, um, but the Advocate General, Lord Keane, resigned. He So he's the top legal man for the UK government in Scotland. And he's basically resigned because of the Inter- Internal Markets Bill saying that it wouldn't. he doesn't believe that it would be legal.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, the government even admitted that in the Commons, which is extraordinary. I think that they're putting it down to a, a misbriefing now. Um, And they hadn't actually planned to say it in the first place. But the idea that you could stand up in the Commons and say that it breaks international law is quite incredible.
0: Yeah, well, I think well, it breaks international law, what, selectively and a little bit. Yes, very
1: specifically, (laughs) Yeah.
0: But I think when um, your top legal brains say that they're leaving and also lawyers um, or MPs that are lawyers, and there's quite a lot of them, are now being briefed that they could never practice law again if they vote for this bill. I mean, it's pretty serious. And I suppose going back to your point about Douglas Ross, I mean, he's only been the leader of the Scottish Conservatives for just over a month. Mm -hmm. He resigned from a government job on a point of principle because Dominic Cummings had travelled during lockdown. And actually, when you get down to a particular legal point of principle, it seems that Douglas Ross is okay with that.
1: Yeah, it is, and the, the Lord Keane resignation is pretty damning because he was he was seen as quite close to the Ruth Davidson brand of Scottish conservatism. You know, the well, idea he was that, the chair. Yeah, she brought him in, didn't she? Yeah.
0: Oh. Yeah. So, I and what will be interesting is to see who on earth will uh, volunteer to take that role. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you? you
1: take it, Mandy?
0: <laughs> well, as a lawyer, to then take a role where a previous lawyer has said that it was the you were trying to enact something that would be illegal. It's mm-hmm. just bizarre.
1: Yeah, if he so, wouldn't go to work again. It is, I mean, maybe you just have to get someone that's just about to retire.
0: Yeah, maybe on the point of principle, Douglas Ross could take that job as well. And um, the fact that he's not a lawyer doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is difficult for him though, isn't it? You know, it really, really does undermine him. And you can imagine if he was at FMQs, how that would go.
0: Well, I think the the point for them is that the the Scottish Conservatives in particular, they're going to get this thrown at them all the time anyway. So every time anybody raises the point about a second referendum, for instance, Mm. and the Scottish Conservative response has been that, um, well, you you can't have one uh, without Section 30 order being granted. Therefore, you wouldn't have an illegal one. Well, why wouldn't Mm. you now? Why wouldn't you just say, well, the Tories don't respect uh, legal issues, so why should we?
1: Yeah. No, it's an, it's an absolutely terrible time for that because this is obviously, the election is almost upon us. It really, yeah. can, I mean, I suppose you you could say that about quite a few things over the last couple of years, but there's so many ways that this undermines the Scottish Tory brand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and I mean, I think the other thing is, which you touch on there is it's definitely ramping up, isn't it, about the election coming in May.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: I mean, we're seeing lots of things going on, and particularly over this weekend, I think um, an issue that wouldn't normally probably hit the headlines, our SNP candidate selection process seems to be causing quite a lot of problems.
1: Yeah, I've, I've never heard this much about SNP candidate selection processes until this weekend, to be honest. It's not a thing that I ever particularly followed that closely. Normally you follow it once they're selected.
0: Well, I think, I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember new Labour going through this process. And I think when you've got a party that's been in power for a long time and suddenly the potential for being a candidate, candidate becomes a positive career move, mm. they become more competitive. But I think, um, you know, the SNP always did say they would be a different kind of party in power. Mm. Um, but this process seems to be revealing them as much the same as everybody
1: else. Yeah. Um, and then we've had, obviously, the intervention from Michael um, Biaggi just, uh, just this week.
0: Yeah. It's, so, I mean,
1: it's really forceful stuff.
0: It is. So Marco, former government minister, he was the first mental, I think, he, mental health minister.
1: Yeah, uh, he was local, local government, government when he left, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so he, this is all pretty geeky stuff as usual, but he was the MSP for Edinburgh Central. Um, he resigned from politics and that seat was taken by Ruth Davidson. So that was yeah. quite a big shift. And obviously, the SNP have that seat back in their sights now that Ruth Davidson isn't going to stand.
1: Yeah, it's already quite a small majority anyway, isn't it? It is. Even before Ruth Davidson's moving to the the lords.
0: Yeah, but the spotlight was kind of shone on it, if you like, because Angus Robertson, former deputy leader of um, the SNP, but also the leader at Westminster, before he lost his seat in a general election, he put his name, uh, his hat in the ring, for that seat very early on, hmm. as did Joanna Cherry and others. And if you remember, there was a bit of, um, kind of infighting over that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was already the massive storm over the selection <laughs> there.
0: <laughs> Which led to Joanna Cherry saying that she wouldn't be able to stand because the governing body of the SNP had said that you would have to resign your seat at Westminster. Hmm. If you were selected, she felt she couldn't do that. So already you had two big hitters talking about that seat. But then Marco... Um, I think, unexpectedly said, actually, I'm going to stand for that seat, too, or put my name up for selection. So it's now become quite an interesting battle, I suppose, between big names within the SNP. Marco has now put something out this weekend saying that he wants the SNP um, hierarchy to look at why on earth candidates or potential candidates are asking for donations for a campaign to help them get selected. Yeah. Um, which is a very strange thing, I think.
1: Well, it's, it's it's a I suppose the first thing that struck me was that I thought Marco Biagi was basically meant to be a kind of unity candidate. You know, there was <laughs> meant to be this idea that there was already a split, that, you know, there was the Joanna Cherry, Angus Robertson thing. So then Marcus, yeah. Marco Biagi pops up. But then today he's, yeah, he's, I mean, he's accused the party of uh, mishandling the process for selection and then basically ignoring him when he brought it up to them. Mm-hmm. There's a, you know, there's a bit of the quote that says, the SNP SM, prides itself on being a democratic organisation that affords opportunity to all members to participate. But that's not the impression that's being given. If the party's National Executive, Executive Committee wants to restrict Dominic Cummings' tactics or dark money donations, then they should yeah. do it at any time. And I they mean, should. Actually
0: that, the, the wording, the dark money donations. Yeah, and no, this, exactly. this is directly um, referring to a couple of candidates that certainly I know of, there may be others, who have opened up um, crowdfunders for people to donate money to their selection process. So this is even before we get to the point of somebody becoming a candidate. And Marco's point is that these donations can be anonymous. So you don't know who is putting money behind someone even just standing against another SNP candidate. So this is, you know, within the SNP. Um, mm-hmm. and really the one high-profile person that has opened up a crowdfunder to do that is Angus
1: Robertson. Mm-hmm. There yeah, are he does, others. He doesn't name him. He doesn't name him in the statement, but it is obviously, you know, pretty clear yeah. in context.
0: Yeah. So, And I think there, there's been a lot of disquiet within the party about the fact that headquarters don't seem to be handling complaints made to them very transparently. So I guess no. this feeds into that as well.
1: Well, they did, they've responded since uh, the, the SNP has responded through a spokesperson to say, even in internal elections, donations are fully regulated by the political Parties, elections and referendum act 2000. I mean, that's not really going to make the story go away. I don't think that response.
0: Not really, because what, so what happens if you raise quite a bit of money as the potential candidate, you then don't get selected to be the candidate. What happens to that money? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, people give money for whatever reasons and perhaps should be questioning themselves about why they're giving money. Um, I mean, one candidate who has opened a crowdfunder said that he would then donate any money back to the constituency association to help fight the campaign.
1: Mm. But,
0: you know, if you don't know who's donated, why would you take the money? Yeah. So it's all very... And also, selection... I think the notes of interest, if you want to stand as a potential candidate, that closes, I think, um, early this week.
1: Mm-hmm. So it'll
0: be interesting to see if there are any other big hitters throwing their, their names unexpectedly. You know, there may be more SNP MPs that do actually say, well, it doesn't matter what the rules are, are I am going to try and stand. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting this week. So the other big thing in the magazine that we put to bed last week and comes out this week um, has been the green pages. Again, a big focus on environmental issues.
1: Yeah, that's right. We've got a kind of central section on that. That's a quarterly... Section that we introduced in the run-up to the COP, to the to the climate talks, the UN climate talks, which have obviously been delayed by a year yeah. um, by COVID, and I suppose that really that ties into the whole thing because there is now a massive push to try and make sure that the the economic stimulus that's likely to happen to try and push the economy out of kind of stagnation post lockdown that there's a real sense that that has to be a green recovery. Um, yeah. I suppose the real question is what that actually means in practice. There's a kind of um, people, are, all sorts of different groups are pushing for their own agendas to be brought into this. And so the magazine really looks at is what is a green recovery um, and, and how do we get it?
0: Yeah. And it's about that sustainability, isn't it? Um, I mean, in yeah. this one, I've interviewed Annie Shepherd, the CEO of Salix, which enables public sector organisations across England, Scotland and Wales, to take a lead in tackling climate change by looking at how they increase their energy efficiency. Mm. And one of the things that Annie and I were talking about was that, that you know, in the context of David Attenborough talking about polar bears and um, the melting of the ice cap, how do you make LED lighting, street lighting and recycling a sexy subject, but she manages it? <laughs> I think we're going to hear from her now.
1: I want to hear how you do that.
0: (laughs) So, Annie, you and I have discussed this before at length, but clearly the pandemic, an absolute tragedy. People are still going through this, but we are all thinking and reflecting on how we live, how we work, how we care for our environment. And of course, at Salix, you've really been at the cutting edge of all of that pre-pandemic.
2: Yes, we have. The pandemic has had a sort of uh, tragic effect on many people's lives. And uh, for those of us that aren't involved in a huge sort of grieving process for lost loved ones, I think that people have been thinking about the environment they live in, the things that are important to them, that hours exercise that you had outdoors, you began to become, I think, more aware of the whole environment that we move, live and breathe in and uh, how much we value it and beginning to understand how much it's threatened by the way modern society is functioning.
0: So I think in some ways, Annie, I, and in fact, the economy secretary in Scotland talked to me about this. She said that in some ways, this this crisis has accelerated thinking around the green agenda and green recovery and how we approach, basically, how we organise our work and, and living life.
2: Well, of course, because but I'd like to sort of make a connection about that, because there is only so much that the individual can do about their carbon footprint. But when that individual starts to move into their car to get to work or moves into the workplace, or we look at how carbon is created in the society, it, it can't be left to the individuals. This needs national and international leadership to really address what is the world's ecosystem. So, of course, it's still right that we have to do things individually and locally, but that has to be significant to contribute to what has to happen internationally if we are to stop the earth basically overheating. And I guess that is one
0: of the big lessons from what we have all been engaged in in the last, you know, eight to nine months in believing that we all have a collective responsibility. We have an individual role, but together we can actually make change.
2: Yes, of course. I mean, one of the things that um, the pandemic, I suppose, has experienced has helped us experience is that there are, that communities collectively have agreed to abide by uh, what government has asked them to do. They've understood the messages. And so that, I suppose, produces the possibility that as we are facing the sort of climate emergency that the world is facing, that communities, both small and large and city groups, can begin to engage together on What are the actions that we can take that will genuinely make a difference to the carbon footprint of Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, the Highlands, all of those sorts of areas um, in order that we're making a contribution to both our country and to the world? Now, we'll we'll come back to the role of leadership. I think probably pre-pandemic,
0: it was the likes of David Attenborough, actually, and Greta Thunberg that were We're able to allow people to see that we all had an individual responsibility that could help, if you like, do something to protect that polar bear, the the vision, if you like, of the polar bear on the um, melting ice cap. But how do you then take that into the work that you do and say, well, actually, replacing street lighting can help that (laughs) polar bear too?
2: Yeah, so it would be wonderful if I could to have a sort of a campaign that says save the polar bear, do something about your street lighting. It would, it would maybe engage people there because I think people are always looking to understand if I do this, what impact will that have? So the way I sort of describe it is this, is that that electricity that's on your street light, that is burning gas, mainly in uh, not not so much coal nowadays of course in the uk that is burning gas at a power station and that gas is being burned to create electricity that is both sort of producing electricity in your home and uh, servicing the street lights outside so if we can find a way of reducing the amount of gas that has to be burned we will be saving we will be reducing the carbon footprint so in our view doing street lighting which has led lighting because that is more energy efficient i e it burns less gas back at the power station that's the way that street lighting reduces the carbon footprint and contributes to saving the polar bear. Difficult to make those connections, but that's that's how it works. Do
0: you think when we're in times like this, when clearly um, money is going to be um, tight, given the economic situation, that people there's a danger that people end up saying, "Oh gosh, you know, the green agenda—it's it's such a luxury. We we can't go there."
2: Well, look, there's always a danger about the attitudes and the feelings that individuals and governments have when they're dealing with all this crisis and the priorities and getting people out of work. I think there is evidence to show that um, investing in the green agenda will help to stimulate the economy. I think that that argument has been won. Um, it will get people back into work, and it is a part of our economy that will be growing, in any event. But it's an important it's an important part of the uh, the changes that our economy is going to go through. And I think that when we think about expense, um, there's 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 a whole thing about value here, isn't there? About what is it? what is it we need to create in to allow this earth that we live on to survive because i don't think people really have a picture yes they have a picture of the ice cap melting and the polar bear not having an environment to live in but do they have a picture of what will happen when the earth uh, the Earth temperature rises by another two degrees, and I know that Richard Adenbroe is one of the was one of the individuals who, of course, is doing everything he can to explain why that event is is perilous for mankind. But they are such big, huge issues, and
0: I suppose when I look at your background, if you like, that when people feel overwhelmed or despairing of a situation. I mean, you have a particular reputation for going into councils predominantly um, as a former chief executive and basically sorting out basket case councils. Mm -hmm. So how how do you bring those lessons of not being overwhelmed into the situation that we're now in?
2: Oh, I don't think it's that difficult, really. I think the important thing is to be able to bring people together and answer the question, what are we here for? What is our purpose? And what is our duty and responsibility to the communities that we serve? And once we stop self-serving, once we start thinking about what we're there for and what we need to do to enable communities to thrive, enable people to have fulfilling lives and to create futures for their children, you then begin to realize that there are things that local councils can do that contribute to making people able to have better lives and more fulfilled lives. So you concentrate on results for children in schools, you concentrate on parks, um, that people can have leisure time in, and you clean up the streets and you have regular collection of your uh, of your rubbish so that streets streets are clean. These are the things that are important to people. And when people begin to see that they're getting those results, you can begin to talk about the bigger things. How do we preserve our um, our green spaces? How do we improve air quality? How do we get people out of the motor car and walking more? I mean, I remember when I went to school, we all walked to school. Nowadays, schools have problems because cars are all trying to get near the school in order to drop children off. So, you know, our society has changed so much. And with that has been the earth warming. Yeah. That is our big, big international, national and local problem. Our earth is getting warmer and it's going to have major repercussions and we have to do something about it. That's the message that is fairly clear. We now have to find a way of engaging people in how do we do this together.
0: Now you have very practical examples that you can point to in Scotland of where you have made those changes.
2: Yes, we've done great work. I mean, I'm really, impressed with what our customers in local government um, have done in Scotland you know from I can talk about very simple things let's start with um, putting covers on swimming pools that preserves the heat of the water that reduces how much how much carbon is burnt and then we've got A great project that I rave about internationally, which is at St Andrews University, where they have taken the heat from their server, and to explain this very simply, and that heat is being redirected into warming the building. Hence, they don't have to burn gas back at the fire station, back at the power station, to be... um, uh, heating their buildings. I mean, universities, places with big uh, server rooms, they get hot, that heat can be redirected with the sort of technology that we have. In Scotland, street lighting is being undertaken by every local authority. And the Scottish government have given funding to pump prime that initiative in order that this is something that local, local authorities can do. So there's all sorts of really exciting things. And I could start talking about what they're doing about solar, how buildings are being insulated you know, to, to cut on heat loss. All of these things are contributing to how Scotland is reducing the carbon footprint of Scotland. Do you feel in some ways that
0: Salix is pushing very much against an open door, if you like, because the green agenda has been baked in if to, to our politics, if you like, for some time?
2: I think that's true. I think that, um, that obviously um, the conflict for uh, local government in Scotland is, of course, they've got loads of priorities and loads of things that they have to do for their local communities. So they have to find space as well as um, clearing the streets, keeping parks clean, providing a service at cemeteries, cremations, all of those sorts of things that local government has to do, and also addressing the green agenda. So I think that um, the political leadership in Scotland is doing uh, uh, great things to uh, keep Scotland on track with the national policies that are about a cleaner greener Scotland How important is just leadership in general? I
0: mean you you and I have discussed your background before and we talked about the fact that you see yourself very much as an ambassador, if you like, of public money. Where does your leadership come from? How have you learned to do it?
2: Hmm. Well, I think there's the academic learning part where you can look at what works, what evidence is about the way that you work. You can take your own personal experiences of leadership and what that means to you and um, what you've learned from it. I, th- I think that you learn to use your ears a lot and listen to what local people and are telling you that they need and what's important to them. And I think that's the thing that helps you develop your leadership style. But leadership has to be based on values and um, principles that you want to work with. And uh, I think that what we need for the green agenda is open, transparent leadership, a, a leadership that's prepared to educate and advise and, uh, o- and support people to understand why this is so important, and a leadership that then is directing resources to help communities make the changes that we've talked about today. And do you lead by example?
0: Have you made personal changes to your own life that perhaps fit with this whole agenda?
2: Oh, I have. I'm, I'm, I mean, I wish I could go vegetarian and, <laughs> and reduce my meat intake. So I have, I have reduced uh, that, that part of my diet. But yes, in my own home, um, I've worked for my own home to become um, uh, as high a rate energy efficiency as it's possible to have in a Victorian house. We have solar panels on the roof. Um, We have heating controls in uh, every room, double glazing. Um, So what that has done in my own life is reduced my energy bills that I have to pay and um, has reduced the the carbon footprint of uh, the home I live in. I also now have an electric bike and uh, I cycle to work. So I am no longer getting in my car to do any sort of journey, even if it's to the station or um, in the local community. So that's the sort of things that individuals do, but if that, even if every individual in the country did that, it won't be enough to stop global warming. We need the big things about how industry is more um, uh, energy efficient, and um, how transport is more energy efficient, all of these are the big areas that are burning burning carbon. And I
0: suppose one of the difficulties, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, is um, how you make this agenda sexy. I mean, how do you make (laughs) um, energy efficiency, heating efficiency, a sexy subject?
2: Well, the first thing is, I think it's quite sexy to look at your bills and know what you're paying for gas and electricity. And electricity is expensive. So I think it's pretty sexy to reduce your, the amount of money you pay for uh, energy because the cheapest energy is the energy you don't need to use anymore. And that means you can go out and have dinner with whoever you fancy going out and have dinner with which is very sexy. <laughs> well, it could be. I, uh, could it be. could be. <laughs> I, I, just, um, I just think that um, the relationship between understanding what energy is costing us and how it's possible to reduce our energy. I mean, what's happening in industries in Scotland and, and in other parts of the world and in the UK is that industries know that their biggest cost is their staffing cost. And after that... It's the energy costs. And so it's the area where industry can begin to look at how can we reduce those costs. And it's energy efficiency that reduces those costs. And the same thing needs to happen in in the domestic uh, living environment. How can we reduce the costs of the amount of energy we use in our homes. And the answer lies in insulation and energy efficiency. I mean, we obviously, we've talked about some
0: of the issues around the pandemic. And I suppose that the paradox in a little way is that the pandemic, pandemic has probably taught us all to think more about the environment but also is increased things like single-use plastics and uh, necessarily mm. within the NHS, et cetera. Do you see yourself facing particular challenges because of what we've just gone through or going through?
2: Well, I mean, I'd only be talking on a, on a personal level because our business focus is really around energy efficiency. But I don't know about you. And I walk down the local streets, I see in the gutters and on the pavements, dispensed with masks. Oh, yeah. One of my (laughs) bugbears. Oh, sorry to mention it, then. Um, But That's the sort of thing that, yeah, it's a reminder of what this pandemic has done, that all of that rubbish is going into landfill Mm -hmm. or other ways of disposing of, of rubbish. And of course, what we're now learning is that our use of plastics is affecting the whole ecosystem of our Earth. And it's particularly uh, um, noticeable about what it's doing to sea creatures, what it's doing to um, the ecosystems of, um, of, of the barrier reef, for example, that plastics are having a profound effect on our environment and stopping plastics, getting rid of plastic carrier bags it is, and the way we dispose of them is really important if we're going to start making any impact on what plastic is doing to our environment. I mean,
0: it's interesting, Annie, that this whole area is so broad, if you like, about saving the planet, about tackling climate change. And obviously, Salix has a particular focus within that. When you're talking to friends at a dinner party or you know, having to describe what you do, how do you simply define it?
2: Creating leaders that want to make a difference in this world is how I'd say that that's the most simplest statement I make. We have a a terrific staff group, who I think, many of them are very young, and uh, they're very passionate about the environment. And they're going to be playing leadership roles in influencing and helping our nation to change. Um, Because when you start talking about LED lights and energy efficiency and insulation it's not the best topic for fun dinner parties so i try to um uh, keep work in its place and uh not um not talk too much about you really could be using some draft excluders here (laughs) (laughs) it don't go down too well but i i do some some friends say, "What would your advice be about um how I can get my uh, you know, you know that homes have a rating of their energy efficiency now, and how could I improve it?" And of course, I always start with insulation. It's I was reading something
0: the other day just about the fact that everybody is talking about a green recovery, and what what does that mean? And Scotland in particular is obviously, incredibly well known for its natural assets yes Um, it's a beautiful country and how do we retain that do you find that that helps in any of your discussions that this is a a nation an environment that we want to protect
2: of course of course it 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 features really highly i I mean you probably don't know this I'm i'm a scot by birth brought up in glasgow i have a passion for scotland i love scotland i love visiting it and uh, go regularly, um, I, 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 have, uh, I still have family in, uh, in Scotland and it is a beautiful country so of course there are people who are absolutely passionate about how do we preserve this environment and people's passion takes them in different directions, they can be passionate about um, something, a local beach, the sea or passionate about um, a a particular part or a valley or a glen that they're living in and how do they preserve that? And what I found is that the local leadership in local government and um, uh, the national uh, leadership of Scotland really wants to preserve these parts of Scotland. But what we have to convince people is the real preservation comes from the big stuff that needs to be done to reduce the carbon footprint, to to reduce the burning of fossil fuels. That is the key that sort of unlocks how we can all have a greener society. And so the decarbonisation of heating is really important. Annie, are you optimistic
0: about the future?
2: That varies from day to day. Mm -hmm. Some days, you, when you're reading about parts of the world that have um, suffered badly because of uh, global warming. I mean, I know that, for example, in the Maldives, I've never been there, but um, the leaders of the the Maldives know that if the Earth continues to warm, um, that uh, they'll lose huge bits of their land that makes me very pessimistic but when i start working with enthused individuals who want to do something about energy efficiency then of course i feel more optimistic where would you like to be by this time next year what me where would i like to be i'd, I'd like uh, to see well I don't know by next year what I would what I think we have that is a real international issue is we know we can get people together locally even nationally getting behind things that are part of the green economy but what is proving difficult is international cooperation on some of these big issues and I suppose what my dream would be would be to see greater international cooperation on what we have to do as a world. You know, world leaders coming together and really putting this at the heart of what world leaders are going to do to make a difference. That's where, you know, it would be so exciting and would be so um, transformational. Do you think that could be the? perhaps one positive legacy of what
0: we've all been living through, that you take that lesson of collective responsibility and of leadership, and if you like, pour that into the green agenda.
2: Well, I think that's what human beings are really good at, collective coming together on things that they care about, and collectively taking action. Um, But internationally, we can see the sorts of challenges that are leaders have in finding international agreements and I think there's probably too much emphasis on where they haven't been able to get agreement and what we need to be working on is where we do have agreement and how can we continue to influence those nations that their national interests are served by international cooperation on climate change. That would be my dream, but, you know, (laughs) that's more than a year away, I fear. Perhaps we need to just start putting polar bear stickers
0: on all the LED lighting just to get that message across.
2: Well, people might want to, people might care more about otters or whatever, but knowing that our animal kingdom is really, you know, endangered. Um, I read an article the other day about what's happening to insects and what this means for our food chains, and it's quite shocking. So um, I don't suppose we get so excited about insects and the part that they play in the ecosystem, but they're as important as uh, polar bears. So yes, every part of our ecosystem is being impacted by human human actions. Which means time it's something change, we can really. do. Yeah, time, time change, th- yeah.
0: Absolutely. Annie, thank you very much.
2: Well, it's really nice to talk to you, and uh, it's really nice to sort of uh, just have time out to think about how do we go about this, and how can we excite people that this matters. And um, I suppose we can take inspiration that uh, young people are really stepping up and saying, we want to inherit a world that is there for us, and we want to do something about this. That's also very inspirational.
1: Okay, so now it's time on the show for Mandy's rant of the week. This is a chance for Mandy to get something off of her chest that's bothering her. It's usually something that politicians aren't particularly able to respond to, but Mandy basically just demands that they do it anyway. Mandy, what have you, what have you got this
0: week? <laughs> that's quite a build-up. I don't know. Do you know what? I think we should probably just... Um, I should walk around with a little dictaphone and just have my rant when I'm feeling like a rant. Um
1: I understand that's what you do anyway.
0: <laughs> no, I just ran. <laughs> isn't, isn't
1: that your use of Twitter, really? <laughs>
0: isn't that just my mumbling? Um, mm-hmm. I suppose it really, this week, it's about people who are ignoring public health messages. Um, and I guess, uh, A, it's on the back of this super spreader down south, this super spreader, who yeah. apparently went on holiday abroad, flew back into the country, went out on a pub crawl and basically infected um, half of England. <laughs> um, well, you know, a bit of England. Yeah. Um and, and actually I I mean, I have a friend who a similar thing has happened to, um, who uh her son or a friend's son went off on holiday, came back. Um, young people obviously don't think that they have a problem with the virus, um, was actually positive, did spread it across um various relatives and friends. It's not it's not mm. a great way to make friends and influence people, is it, really?
1: Not if they find out, no. I've, I've got <laughs> the, the new app, actually, yeah, which oh, is quite oh, useful. Oh, me too. Um, yeah. Although you need, to, you need to keep Bluetooth on at all times to make sure that it keeps updated. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose to me there's, there's a kind of a tension there because we are being told, you know, don't spread coronavirus. We're also being told to do things that will spread coronavirus. And, you know, yeah. like there's a new advert on TV as a young woman goes around to visit her granddad, you know, and it's, they're using this paint as a kind of representation oh, of the I've virus. Oh, I've seen that, Yeah. You know, the idea is that she's been out at this rave, that she's been out at this all-night rave, and then she goes and makes her granddad a cup of tea and gives him it. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I mean, actually, it'd be just as accurate to say that she'd been forced to go to work in the service sector. You know, mm-hmm. she'd gone to work in a hospitality business because it's overwhelmingly young people that are, that are in those sectors. Schools yeah. are reopening too. You know, it's, it feels, if, if anything, I think it's down to political leadership this one. I know I always say um, that these aren't things that politicians can help with. But actually, on this one, I think Boris Johnson probably could have been True. clearer.
0: Yeah. I mean I think the problem is people are starting to hit a bit of a wall right now. Yeah. I mean, I feel it myself that we've been living like this for such a long time. Um things seem to be getting a bit scarier again. I mean, interestingly, this is this is the first time so I've been in a taxi and I've been to London. I've done things I haven't done for, you know, eight months. Mm-hmm. But I was in a taxi this week and we all know taxi drivers are the font of all knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, by the end of a 15-minute journey, basically down to Stockbridge, I'd learned that he really believed we should all just be um, carrying on now as normal because we've got to live with this virus, that he was he- <laughs> <laughs> that he was heterosexual, um, a caveat that he thought was um, important to inform me in, on In because...
1: what way did he say that? Because <laughs> that <laughs> well, could be quite... <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I was quite worried. I mean, I was sitting in a taxi, and he, but he, he was basically st- talking about growing up um, in Edinburgh during the kind of late 80s, early 90s, when AIDS was at its height. And he Mm. said, he was basically saying to me, you know, we thought that was going to be a plague then. We all changed our behaviour. By this time, he told me he always wore a condom when he had sex. And I was starting to actually get quite worried in the taxi.
1: (laughs) Yes. You have to start wondering how far it is till you get to your destination, don't you? You
0: do, really. But his basic point was, and I have to say, I did say to him, you're kind of ignoring the fact that thousands of people did die at that hmm. time. Um, but anyway, his basic point was we should now all just get on with uh, living life as normal and we have to live with the risks.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not totally sure what that means. You know, no, like it's, yeah. um, And I suppose it's also worth mentioning that um, Boris Johnson's team have now had to deny reports from the Italian media that he himself went on a trip to Italy um, a fortnight ago um speaking of spreading the virus i mean my favorite thing about this story actually is it turns out that the newspaper that reported on it had sent um journalists to the airport i think because they were keen to find out about the whereabouts of barcelona footballer luis suarez they weren't actually that interested in the prime minister in the first (laughs) place Um, it just happens that while they were looking for luis suarez they happened they claimed that they saw boris johnson
0: you stumble over the prime minister by accident
1: yeah, well, the airport put out a press release saying that as well as Luis Suarez who's the central part of the story, <laughs> the British Prime Minister was also there. Right, so. so he's he's been outshone.
0: Oh, yeah, maybe he can't do anything about that. So they say a week is a long time in politics and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollyrood.com. Bye for now.